Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, May the 9th starts now on today's show. Ben welcomes back for the third time, a member of the Ben Jarofsky brain trust, former 39th ward aldermanic candidate, Denali Dasgupta. As always, the Ben Jarofsky show brought to you in part by SEIU healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of labor, the Chicago teachers union and Chicago reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and uh, if you like newsletter articles from Ben Jarofsky, there's a new one up there. You might want to check that out. Head on over to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Brandon Makes His Move Tuesday, and here's why. Because over this weekend, Brandon, as in Brandon Johnson, as in the mayor-elect, made his move on the city council reorganization. For the longest time, we were speculating and wondering, who's in, who's out? <laughs> Will Brandon even make a move? Will he try to dictate who the chairs of the council committees are? You know, we've talked so much about this over the last four years. I have educated you, listeners. I know a lot of you didn't know anything about city council chairs until I began my in-depth discourses, bringing on guests to talk about it, deep dives, make Dumpkin Dave glow ads. We're always taking that deep dive. This is why it's significant. This is why it's important. We just did a show at the Promontory in Hyde Park. Uh, Maria Haddon was there. Jeanette Taylor was there. I see you, JT. And they were talking about the city council reorganization. Again, one more time, in case you're listening to the show for the first time, it's very important who chairs a committee. If, if you chair a committee, you get a little patronage. You're an older person. You get a little patronage, get some jobs. Beyond that, you control the flow of legislation. You determine when the meetings occur. You determine, like, what gets heard, what gets sent to the rules committee, where they just dump it. And so, you know, you think, well, in a uh, democracy, there would be a check and a balance, and the aldermen, the legislators, would determine who their chairs are. But no, in the city of Chicago, we determine that that power should reside in the mayor uh, and that the mayor should determine. And by the way, it's been this way since Harold Washington took control of the Chicago City Council. There was only that one, like, four-year period. I don't even know if it was a full four years in Chicago history where the mayor didn't dictate who the chairs were. Before that, Richard J. Daly dictated it. It's viewed as an essential aspect of keeping control in Chicago because they don't trust democracy in this city. They believe in a powerful executive. We have this fear that if we have too much democracy, the rabble will be running around, losing their minds. <laughs> Here come the peasants with their pitchforks. So keep them control. Keep the aldermen under control. Have a powerful mayor in charge but uh in the last city at the last days of the lori lightfoot administration um, before it was known who the mayor would be would it be paul Vallis? would it be brandon johnson the aldermen themselves got together and decided who they think the chair should be 
because of course it's a symbolic vote because there has to be uh, a vote of the full council that's newly elected. My distinguished guest may have been one of those people. She ran for alderman. Uh, and uh, so that takes place after, of course, the new alderman and the mayor are sworn in. Uh, and so pretty much everyone figured out, uh-uh, no way. Definitely no way if Paul Vallis, who's old school, learned everything he could from powerful uh, Richard M. Daly, was ever going to let alderman determine uh, who the chairs were, particularly in the finance committee. Finance committee is very important because that's where the mayor submits his budget. You want somebody that you can work with. This is the reigning theory. Uh, someone that you trust. Someone who will do your bidding. <laughs> this is how Chicago thinks. And Scotty Wagesback, who was the incumbent chair of the finance committee, who was an ally of Lori Lightfoot, had been kind of, I guess the word is disrespectful of Raina Johnson in many ways. We've been expressing sort of like the fear, the centrist fear that this radical incoming administration would somehow destroy the city of Chicago with their radical progressive ideas of finding new ways to pay for city services instead of the same old property tax. No, we can't have that. We can't tax rich people. I think the universal principle of the centrists in this town, what I call mainstream Chicago, is that if you only tax rich people, that's bad. You have to tax everybody, okay? It's not fair to pick on rich people. And so their sort of central view is that if you have any kind of progressive tax that puts the onus on wealthy people, they will all flee. They're going to Gary. They're going to Miami. They're going to Florida. That's what they say. And everybody repeats that as a mantra. They read it in the Tribune. They read it in Cranes. They read it in the Sun-Times. And they go around saying, whenever I go out like to eat with my baby boomer friends of the centrist persuasion, They'll be like, Ben, you realize if you tax the rich, the law will leave. I go, let me guess. You read a Chicago Tribune editorial. Did you get that in a Chicago Tribune? Please show me whatever study that showed rich people are leaving Chicago anywhere at any time because of taxation. But these folks, they read in the crates. They read in the Tribune. It's gospel to them. They repeat that. So Scotty was kind of repeating that. Brandon Don said, no, I don't want that. Uh, and then over the weekend, it was announced uh, that Scotty was out. Pat Dow is in. Now, Pat Dow, I've known Pat Dow for many, many years. I remember when Pat Dow, older woman of the third ward, uh, was a, uh, a planner. She worked in the city's planning department. She's no radical, ladies and gentlemen, okay? So downtown business community, take a big, deep breath, all right? Chicago Sun-Times, Tribune, Crane. Don't be scared. She's about as centrist as they come. Known her forever. All right. And she was an ally of all these mayors. Didn't scare you then, but she was an ally of Daly and an ally of Rahm and an ally of Lori Lightfoot. So there's no reason for you to be scared of her now. They are very frightened of Carlos Ramirez Rosa, <laughs> alderman of the 35th Ward. They are so scared of him. This, this sometimes story, man, that uh, in today's bright one, big step forward for progressives. Joe Ferguson, uh, it seems to be the main source for this. Joe Ferguson used to be the Inspector General of the City of Chicago. Uh, I don't know what he does now, but it sure looks like he wants to run for Kim Fox's position as Cook County State's Attorney. He's frightened, very concerned about Carlos Ramirez Rosa's elevation to head zoning. That's hilarious, man. They're, they're so worried about a lefty in zoning. You think of all the crooks and corruption and incompetence? <laughs> Let's run the zoning committee. I never heard anyone from central Chicago, much less Joe Ferguson, any of them 
complain about, I don't know, Danny Solis when he was running zoning, Tom Tunney. Remember Tom Tunney? Yeah, Tom Tunney ran zoning uh, for Lori Life. He's the one who had the cinnamon roll speakeasy where the middle of the pandemic, <laughs> when all the other restaurants were shut down, Tommy Tunney was like, if you knock on the door three times, I'll let you upstairs and you get a cinnamon roll. I didn't hear anyone from Main Street Chicago wondering, is this man suitable to be the all-important zoning chair? I can remember zoning chairs from like back in the day with Goda. These are guys that you guys don't even know about. Ancient names. I won't be even bother to let what you went on them. Who went to jail? I didn't I didn't hear anyone worried about it from Central Chicago business business community. Now they're all worried because a leftist is in charge of zoning. You guys are funny, man. Here's the thing, they go. In the article, they go, Ramirez rose a champion a plan to penalize developers who tear down single-family homes or multi-building units in Logan Square and other fast-gentrifying neighborhoods along the 606 trail. Yeah, that's funny. Penalize. That's, a, that's an interesting use of the word. It's called upzoning. So, like, you take a parcel of land that's only supposed to have a house and you put three units on it. It makes the land a lot more valuable. And the concept in the city of Chicago, which was not come up by, by lefties, by the way, the concept, if you're going to squeeze more density on a plot of land, you're going to have to pay for it. This is a concept that goes back to the Daly administration. Rom loved it. When Rom and Daly did, I didn't hear anybody say they were penalizing. I heard them talk about the public-private partnership that was benefiting all citizens of Chicago by getting developers to contribute more money into the neighborhood fund that would be used to develop neighborhoods so that the little people of Chicago, yes, you, the little people of Chicago, will benefit by the growth in the robust downtown that's led by our leaders, our civic-minded leaders who are so brilliant. When that's the that's the kind of writing we got about stuff like this when Rahm and Daly, when Rahm and Daly were calling the shots, even maybe with Lori Lightfoot. Until somehow or other, she like turned into persona non grata. Not quite sure how that happened. Like I'm not. This this is gonna take a deep dive that would probably require a little uh, Freudian analysis. Like why did the downtown business community turn against Lori Lightfoot? I I truly do not understand it. Nothing they say makes any sense. It's not like anything she did. They say she's mean, but they're all mean. They're all mean to each other. The downtown business community is mean. Have you ever had a nice boss? You know, I mean, I had a few in my life, but like, think about it. She's mean. The people complaining about being her being mean are themselves mean. Guys are so weird in Chicago, and you believe it. I know you believe it because I hear you parrot it back to me. Ben, Lori Leifert was mean. <laughs> I heard it on PEZ, so it must be true. Anyway, so Carlos Ramirez Rosa was doing in Logan Square what Rom and Lori and Daly were doing with downtown developers, but he's penalizing developers. They're initiating a public-private partnership that's beneficial to the entire city of Chicago, unleashing the economic engine that is capitalism, so everyone is benefiting from it. Guys are funny. You are a funny people, Chicago. I've watched you for a long time. You're very funny. You're very scared right now about Brandon Johnson and lefties. Ooh, lefties. 
All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring in my distinguished guest. She's got a lot to say. I think she's really, 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 really smart. Uh, and as I said before, she ran for alderman in the 39th Ward. Uh, and Denali, welcome back, Connor, to my humble little show. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for seeding that New York City reference because we are going to get back to New York City. Yes. Yes. Let's back to New York City. What was the reference? I wanted such a reference. Welcome back, Connor. Oh, well. <laughs> Mr. Carter. Very good. I would have thought you were too young to know about Welcome Back, Connor. And you showed me. You weren't born yet when the show came on. I just want to tell you that. No, uh, no I caught it at Nick and Night. Nick at Night reruns. Got it. Uh, so uh, Denali Dasgupta was an aldermanic candidate in the 39th Ward. She came on my show as a candidate. I thought she was so smart. Uh, she, did, she did not win, but the smart people do not always win in the city of Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. The good people do not always win in the city of Chicago. Uh, and she is now, as far as I'm considered, a regular in the city uh, on my little show. So uh, their loss is my gain, uh, Denali. Um, any thoughts about what I just riffed on about the, um, what is it, like the demonization of the left? in the city of Chicago that's ongoing, like trying to turn someone like Carlos Ramirez Rosa into this scary, this, this like scary leftist figure, this radical leftist. Do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, so you were talking about lefties versus grifters, um, which by the way, sounds like, like, a, like a barroom softball game that I would definitely wanna go to. Um, and you gotta think about it this way, right? Like I come in and do all like the budget stuff and the public administration fun facts. But when you are asking people to shift the cost from one person to another, you got to think like, where's the surplus generated? Sometimes we call it profit. Let's call it surplus because I'm one of those crazy lefties too. Who gets it and where does it go? Now, when you have somebody who's a quote unquote lefty, they're saying the surplus is in the form of people paying the true cost of building, of developing. They're still making money off of it. Um, but the surplus comes in the fact that we're going to have like additional housing. The people who live in that housing are not going to have to pay additional cost on that. And so the surplus comes in the form of housing that other people get to live in, right? Their daily existence. Now you have a grifter, surplus is always money in a bag handed somewhere in a slightly circular direction. So of course these people are worried, right? You know, there's always gonna be a surplus in a transaction and the difference is, does it go to some folks who get to live in a house or does it get put in a bag and shuttled right back downtown? And I think people see that, you know, I think one of my kids went to school today wearing a t-shirt illustrating the water cycle. But when we start pulling out that circularity of grift and government and business, that money is all turning into services and it's all turning into public benefits and it's all going to like regular folks. And you know, I think that's why people are scared of, of lefties, right? They think that they're making this nice little tight cycle of grift into a leaky bucket. They're elevating some folks, making life easier for them. We can never do that love the struggle, uh, and all of that. That's why it seems dangerous. That's my theory. Yeah, well, that's an interesting theory, even though what they're saying is dangerous is essentially a policy that's been going on for a long time in the city of Chicago. I just want to point that out one more time. Yeah, when you call it a public-private partnership, what you're doing is giving something in the form of a tax abatement or you're giving a whatever, right? Like when you're thinking about a fee or a cost shift, then again, that's when the surplus shifts into the, the good being cheaper or easier to gain for people. And when we think about real estate, right, we should be thinking about producing housing, not about producing profit. And that's the difference. The public-private par partnership model still says the private sector is someone, and this comes back to the conversation we had last time, the private sector needs to be courted. 
They have the expertise, they lead, we have to accommodate them. That's the job of the public sector. And it's like, nope, you do two separate things and they got to fight it out. And only in that middle ground, are we going to find a way to actually support and serve the people of Chicago? Well, so wait, uh, so just so I understand you, uh, produce housing, not profit, but it's okay that people make profit making housing. Am I right on that? Or do you think that there's too much profit uh, being made out of housing and that raises the cost of housing and that's part of the reason why housing is so expensive? I think there's a lot of different, so I mean, that I came up in affordable housing in New York City and there's a whole range of things that happen in housing. One of the things that I would like to see is some of the most mobile people who have some of the highest housing cost burdens, typically rent burdens rather than ownership burdens, are also just churning in some of our, our poorest communities. And so if people can't like get and stay housed, that's a big problem, right? You're talking about Logan Square, you're seeing gentrification and migration, like groups of people over time are being pushed from one place to another. There's lots of places like on the South side where you're, you're already losing density, where people are just bouncing in place. And that's really unstable and it's really bad too. Um, awesome. And this is where I have to put my plug in, right? In terms of the, the unity plan, uh, a, a friend of ours is going to be in charge of the uh, Legislative Research Bureau, our good friend, Samantha Nugent, alternate person of the 39th Ward. And um, I think that that bureau, I think the council needs demographic capacity. So I think they need somebody who does this thing that we're doing that I do really well um, from my basement sometimes, but would do from anywhere. We could finance it just by making sure that Chicago isn't historically undercounting folks for the census. So we'd get like a ton of federal money back if we actually properly counted Chicagoans. Uh, but the other thing is that we could sell this reality show about me and Sam Nugent having to work together. And I think it would just be like fantastic. I think Bravo would be all over it. Uh, that, that Sam Nugent is uh, the incumbent alderman, uh, alderwoman, I should say, of the 39th War, who uh, Denali faced uh, challenged in the last um, automatic election. So that would be an interesting uh, reality TV show. If somebody Call me Sam. No, you mean, yeah, there's a comma, there's a comma between me and Sam. She doesn't yes. want you to call her Sam. She just wants yes. to call her Denali, but anyway, sorry, really bad joke. Um, we, if we're going to get pedantic, grammar's going to come into it at some point, Ben. Got it out of the way right up front. No, it's, and, and it's, it's, um, it's just weird. It's, that's part of my bizarre, like, I hear things in a strain. I hear it, call me Sam, and I think of jokes, and it's, <laughs> I should have just kept quiet and moved on. Um, I love it. Talk talk a little bit about what you could do to uh, confront the pro problem uh, of the undercount. This is something oh. we hadn't even discussed, talked about, talking about. Uh, this happens every time you come on the show, but I want to know about this. So go ahead. Okay, so the undercount, right? So the census counts people. And based on how they count people, we decide where people are in this country. And federal money is largely parceled out in what I call like an underspecified way because they got to give money to local governments. And that, that has to work in rural Wyoming the same way that it works in downtown Chicago. And so we get a ton of federal money into our budget. And actually, this does connect with what we were going to talk about because a large part of our human services funding for the city comes in the form of state and federal grants that are parceled out based on how many people we have. So it could be people overall or it could be people with a particular need. And if we don't count those people, if we don't accurately represent uh, how many school children we have, we don't accurately represent like how many people overall we have. We could lose government representation. We could lose Congress people. We also lose like hard dollars in our budget. 
And the thing about it is that like the highest need people are often the hardest to count people, people who are highly mobile, immigrant communities, and they often count for need-based dollars. So, you know, in the 1990s, one of the things that was backfilling our enrollment in the public schools was a lot of immigration and we had a lot of immigrant kids. And if we undercounted those kids um, in the census, then like we might not get enough money for services for kids. Yeah. Right. And so we could get more. And, and the city of New York was really good about doing this for a really long time. And there's all kinds of ways that cities with local expertise, with, um, you know, trust in communities can work to challenge those undercounts. Um, the way we do it here is is we do about half of it. But there's like a little technical piece that I'm not going to go into. But essentially, that's like what a demographer can help a large city do. The other thing they can help them do is like we have an idea that's really good. We have a policy. We have an idea. We have some vibes. We don't always know where and for how many people we're going to do that thing. And so something that you're talking about, right, we're going to change this policy. What's the potential impact of it? How many people could that affect? How many housing units? What are the communities that's going to happen in? One of my biggest problems with uh, elected officials, the council here, the councils anywhere, even state level officials, is sometimes they don't know a problem is their problem. Because a problem that affects their constituency. Sometimes somebody has to measure the prevalence of it. And they actually, when we talk about homelessness, you might think that that's a downtown problem because you see a lot of street homelessness there. But I would like to talk to you about all the people who are facing housing insecurity in these particular communities. So hi, we've delivered this, we've put it on your desk. This is your problem, this is your issue now. And now your constituents can be bothering you about it, and hopefully you'll become a champion for it. Well, and in addition, they don't recognize, there's another thing they don't recognize. They don't sometimes don't recognize that what they construe as a problem is actually a benefit. Uh, and uh, so I'm thinking now of asylum uh, seekers who've been bussed into the city of Chicago or flown into the city of Chicago. We've talked a lot about them on the show. Uh, I think there's 8,000. That's the last number I saw in the Sun-Times. 8,000 uh, have been brought to Chicago. Now, this is viewed as a problem. And I'm like, well, we've been complaining. I've, all I've heard from Republicans, uh, all I've heard from centrists is that the city is in trouble, the state is in trouble because we're losing population. Now we're gaining population, thanks to Gregory Abbott, the, gov the governor of Texas, bringing asylum seekers uh, into Chicago. It's not viewed as a benefit or a solution to the problem of people leaving Chicago. It's viewed as a problem. Help me on this, Denali. Yeah, no, I mean, so I will say that, um, you know, there's there's some great folks up near me, uh, including our alderman in the 33rd Ward, who are coordinating resources, lots of mutual aid groups. There's folks in the police station. Um, and, and I went down there to drop some stuff off the other day and like people are just they've got like sheets of printer paper up on each window and they're like this is your like eight by eight space. I mean it's not the way that we should be doing things from a humanitarian perspective or just from a practical perspective and folks are getting off of planes and someone is telling them like oh go to the police station go somewhere it's, it's totally disorganized it's chaos. And so um you know, again, right, like if, if we're going to if we're going to turn this into a regular like Sesame Street reading rainbow style bit where we have our like public administration term of the day, we have a capacity problem. And what people say is the capacity problem is like, sorry, we're full up in Chicago. We are not full up in Chicago. The capacity issue is not in we don't have enough space for folks. It's that we don't have the administrative capacity to know how to receive, serve and integrate people. I am very careful not to say process people. Because I don't think that we need a whole sort of like processing, surveillance, policing arm over this. But we basically need to know, like, 
where are people coming from? Where are they going to? Where could they go to? We don't have a full continuum of a shelter system. We haven't had that for folks here before migration. I mean, migration brings a lot of these things into focus. Um, but we have a huge capacity problem, which is that our agencies that are charged with, you know, humanely and compassionately helping people who don't have a place to go, don't have the resources mobilized. Our public sector does not have those resources and, and we can't and won't make them a priority. So what's the first thing we should do as a city, in your humble opinion? To okay. This? <laughs> drunk with power. <laughs> uh, maybe just drunk. Who knows? Um, so I, I think about this as what I call like human service infrastructure. Like we need to know what our resources are. And okay, my dad is, I, I feel like I've talked to you about like every single member of my family at this point. Like you probably have like the scooped a family tree behind you. My dad is a civil engineer and he works on emergency management. And so I need you to imagine this thing. It's actually on the board behind me because I've been working on this. Uh, every emergency or crisis has roughly four phases. There's preparedness where like as you're just going about your business, you're making sure that you're kind of ready-ish, right? You know what you're doing. There's response. The crisis hits and we start deploying resources. And so like that piece is, is where we are right now. There's mitigation where we're kind of like fixing the things that went wrong. Response is very quick. Mitigation is sort of a longer term um, rewiring. And then what did I miss? Uh, oh, sorry, there's response, recovery, and then mitigation. So recovery is just kind of like, we, we went fast and hard at a bunch of stuff. Now we're gonna kind of like bring people back, take us back to normalcy. And then mitigation is we get ready for the next phase of preparedness. What we fail to do consistently every time, and I want you to think back to COVID too, is a crisis hits. And at the beginning of our response period, we have a mobilization. We don't know what resources we have. We know we have tons of social service agencies. We know we're Chicago. We've got smart people. We've got helpful people. We've got good people. But we do this massive mobilization and it's chaos. And the one thing you have to remember is that time is of different value during response. Response has to be fast. Every day we're trying to just count people or figure out where people go or actually like every day that we have pregnant women sleeping on the floor of a police station you know, which, which is a real life example of something that's happening in like my, my community. Um, that time, that failure is, is a bigger loss. And it's a loss of public confidence. It's, you know, institutional and gratuitous cruelty. It's a thing that makes people lose their confidence that, that folks know what they're doing. Mm. And there's a reason that we, we don't do it. It's that we don't, we don't know what resources we have to deploy, whether that's space or money or services, we don't sit at the ready. And that's what the public sector does. We talked about this last time, right? When, when we talked about Mayor Daly privatizing things, it's sort of saying, oh, the private sector is so responsive. They're yeah. so good. We don't need just-in-time inventory to get Amazon to deliver something to your house. We need to know right away the scope and scale of resources we can bring to bear for a large and fast recovery in response to a crisis. So I, gave, I teed that Amazon thing up for you so well, Dan. Yeah, no, the Amazon thing. Yeah, thank you, well done. You're welcome. Uh, I, uh, this, is, uh, this is my contribution uh, to uh, the, uh, this crisis that the city is facing, is to point out that we had a dramatically different attitude, about 50,000 Amazon employees coming to the city of Chicago. We welcomed them. We were ready to pay untold uh, billions of dollars uh, to Amazon to open their... Uh, their, their headquarters here. Of course, it turned out that nobody was really getting much anything from Amazon because the world has radically changed since 2017. But again, the notion of 50,000 people settling in Chicago for Amazon was viewed as a positive, a benefit. 
it's something so valuable that we should spend untold billions and give away prime property, real estate, prime real estate uh, to get them. Uh, we have a totally different attitude when it comes uh, to an influx of 8,000 uh, asylum seekers from south of the border. And there's a lot at play there that you, like somebody could break it down and explain why we have a different attitude uh, about it. But it the, the point is, is that um, there was money to be made from resettling Amazon workers in Chicago. Guarantee you, if we had gotten that uh, headquarters, the, the people in the real estate industry whose job would be to find them uh, uh, housing, uh, there would be uh, people who uh, would hook them up in certain neighborhoods, uh, and it would be like a very upper-class, lucrative, private sector market. The opposite, which is essential human services done by public employees, has been denigrated this entire for almost as long as you've been an adult, Danelle. Probably longer than you've been an adult. I'd say longer than that, right? Yeah, it goes back. It's like the early 90s, mid-80s. Absolutely. We, we, talked about, we talked about the Reagan administration, right? About yes. slashing capacity to make government more efficient. Government's yes. job is not to be efficient. Yeah, and I saw this with the, uh, COVID. And, like, we didn't have the health department on hand to do the kind of outreach work. We didn't have those kinds of employees to do that outreach work. Health department has been, like, shriveled. Over under Rom and uh, going back to from where it was under Daily, they closed mental health clinics. It's like they want to go in an option. When it comes to serving people who don't have money, it's viewed as a waste of money, and so they shovel it over to the like private sector in terms of consultants and contracts. Uh, and we're we've, we're surprised when we're caught up short. So, so we have a lot of nonprofit service providers, and they're great organizations and great folks, but like. What the public sector does is we underpay them. So this is that model of privatization that a lot of these dangerous dangerous lefties talk about, where we systematically underpay our social service providers, and we make them go and raise the rest of that money from capital, right? We make them go raise the rest of that money from downtown business in the form of philanthropy, and those folks walk away with a huge tax break. And so this is the crazy part about mobilization. So a crisis hits, we try to mobilize our social service providers. We try to mobilize our government resources, of which there are fewer and fewer as we cut them. But then when we go to capital, we go to your downtown business folks, we don't try to mobilize their money. And largely because a lot of their money is, is what we're mobilizing, we're mobilizing our social service partners. We try to mobilize their public opinion and their expertise. And it's like, come on, right? We try to let them say, hey, it's okay for you to be compassionate to people. We need the Tribune editorial board not to slam us when we try to be decent human beings. And I think if you're gonna go to capital, if you're gonna go to downtown business, right? Like they can't mobilize something else besides their, their approval, right? <laughs> like that to me is really wild um, that that's what we go to them for. Yeah. Please say it's okay. Yeah, yeah, I know. Please say it's okay. <laughs> that we say it's cool that we do this thing. It's like, nope, this is your job. You're the public sector. Yeah. Or we try to mobilize their expertise. And this is what we talked about last time with fiscal crises, where we say, oh, we got to have some business leaders at the table because they know how to business. And I think like, you know, it was kind of hilarious in the aftermath of the Vallis campaign where he was, you know, last time I was here, we were talking about like the man who knows how to business. And boy, are we seeing how, uh, how that's shaken out. Uh, you're alluding to the fact uh, we've 
that uh, Paul Vallis is suing one of his campaign strategists. Apparently, the Paul Vallis campaign turned over $700,000 to the strategist to bring out the black vote. Uh, and then Paul Vallis is now saying, what did you do for that money? Uh, I see no evidence that you did anything. It's going back and forth. The strategist has his comeback. Uh, yeah, and it shows uh, definitely an ineptitude uh, at play. Uh, that somehow or other was not talked about in any way uh, when he was running for mayor. He was just viewed as our savior. And um, so we got Brandon Johnson instead. All right, let's talk a little police. Last time you were on the show, we talked some police on the show. Right now we're about- We talked some police. I was going to say, so here's the difference, right? If you think about that model I just told you about social service response, when we have a surge of need or a crisis, we do this mass mobilization of capacity public sector capacity and like nonprofit social service capacity to be able to meet the needs. And then we demobilize those folks somewhere in the recovery stage before we get to mitigation, which is really like setting the world up better for the next time, right? And we came out of COVID and we we had unspent money and services that we didn't deploy. So to me, that's that's kind of a failure. Now with the police, our deployment model is we always keep service high. We continue to increase it. And then when we have a surge and we need a response, we pour straight overtime dollars into it. We never demobilize our police, but we demobilize our, our human services and our social services every time there's a crisis. And every single time there's a crisis, we start with this massive remobilization. And, you know, I think that with all these people clamoring for, for blood from the new administration, all these like, you know, disgruntled Vallis voters, they're so excited to see the new administration have this migration crisis land in their lap and have them have to do this mobilization in tandem with staffing up and, and coming on board. And it's just like sort of a sick thing. And as, as you know, as Lori's leaving office, she's talking about all these crises she inherited or that happened during her watch and saying like, don't blame me for this. This is just how crises work. Well, over time, you can get better at managing a crisis. And sometimes like, you know, if you're well prepared, a crisis doesn't always look like a crisis. Yeah, uh, and uh, no, that is a great point. Uh, uh, we never demobilize the police, but we demobilize uh, the human ser- the human service sector in the city of Chicago, and then brag about it. We demobilized public health. Yeah. Right. We did a mass demobilization of public health while people are still dying from COVID and where we have other public health health problems that are going to come down down the line. And if we had built up that public health capacity, imagine how we could deploy it for things like gun violence, for things like mental health, for whatever. Capacity is capacity. Capacity means your ability to do something. Mm -hmm. Right. You can take that and deploy it in any way you want. And that public sector becomes strong and and sort of gets better and more operationally refined over time if they can hold on to that capacity. But we're always just scrambling, right? This should not be like guys' grocery games response to a global pandemic or an international humanitarian crisis. All right. Uh, so when we have these conversations, I view it like a micro and a macro. Uh, and so you're talking very macro in terms of just like the scale, how how many employees we should hire for human services balance with how many employees we should hire in the in the police department and how uh, the police should be deployed and how the human service people p- deployed. Uh, the micro are these stories that pop up and have tremendous um, reverberations throughout society because they expose the breakdown uh, and then they become the dramatic moments that people squabble over. 
And there's two right now uh, that are really in my mind because I read about them all the time because they're just so horrific uh, that we can't stop talking about them. One, uh, it, it takes place in your beloved New York City where you were raised. Uh, so let's I was talk raised in the suburbs. Say that again. I, I was raised in the suburbs. I don't want Chicagoans to think I'm dishonest because Chicagoans are very big about like if you came up in the suburbs and this versus the city, and so are New Yorkers. Yeah. I did live in New York City. I worked for the city of New York, but I came up in the suburbs. Okay, New Yorkers. This is a tangent within a tangent. <laughs> in my experience, do not have that obsession as Chicago. They don't. They don't. But this this show is going to be listened to by Chicagoans. Okay, and, and I if just they feel like I'm a suburban interloper, all my credibility goes out the window. We're never going to get a demographer. We're never going to have an adequate crisis response. They'd be like, "This girl lied about being from the city." <laughs> no, I hear you, and I'm glad you did that. Uh, I will say this: I don't. And she can't in, eat square cut pizza. Yeah, she can't. I don't believe in pandering to Chicagoans. I'm. I don't believe in telling Chicagoans that their worldview uh, is acceptable, even though it's demented and deranged and weird. Uh, and so one of the many aspects of this uh, is the obsession Chicagoans have with who's from Chicago and who's not <laughs> from Chicago. Like, what is it about being from Chicago that you want to claim? I'm trying to think about what it is about Chicago that you're so proud of. I just look... I could go on a whole half hour tangent on this. I'm not. Look, I love it. My kids are from Chicago. And, you know, we talked about my older son the first time. He's the uh, he's in the high school police cadet corps. Uh, he told me this Sunday, actually, this was the St. Jude's parade. He came back. I said, how was it? How did it go? And he was like, Gloria and Brandon hate each other. But I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, he's like, both mayors have to come. And they like, he's like, they stand really far apart. Oh, and that's so like, <laughs> is it for real. Come on, Lori and Brandy. That is ridiculous. <laughs> oh, my. I did but, not know that. Thank you for that report reportage. You know, somebody, I mean, from, from the mouths of babes, my friend. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we're not going to go down the, the, the weirdness that Chicagoans have. Like, you got to you, you can only claim you're from Chicago. I, and then I'm like, sure, like, is there a cutoff point? Like people like I was born in Chicago, lived for eight years, and then we moved to the suburbs, but I'm still Chicago. And like, what is it? The eight years that qualifies you? If it was seven years, would that not qualify you? I want to try to understand the I mindset. Think whether you'll go, right? So last time we talked, and you just talked about businesses leaving, right? Like I, I think there's some element of searching for this like ride or dieness, right? Are you going to be one of those people who leaves? when things get challenging or are you going to stay here are you going to love it are you going to build it and so people like me like i'm a transplant i still ran for office here like i'm raising my family here and i'm not going anywhere because i do think that this stuff like i'm addicted to institutional dysfunction so that's like my own deal but like in some ways i have passed certain chicagoan tests i have not passed others but i think that's what people are really asking because cities will rise and fall and they want to know are are you going to stay here are okay, you well, i just want i just want to point out that our last three mayors are not Chicagoans by the Chicago definition of mayors. Just want to point that out yeah, to yeah, Chicago. Absolutely. Breda Johnson is a proud son of Elgin, which is a town outside of Chicago. Lori Lightfoot hails from Ohio. Somehow or other, she became a Bear fan and a Cleveland Browns fan. Not sure how that happened, but she is from Ohio. And of course, Rom loves Wilmette. That's where he's mm -hmm. from, at his hometown. He's a proud graduate of New Trier East. All right? Go Trevians, he says every day. So <laughs> uh, you haven't even elected a quote-unquote Chicagoan since Mayor Daley, Chicago. And I know you would 
continue to elect him for the rest of your life, but he chose not to run. Uh, all right, let's. I'm sorry, I did not. We're gonna talk about it. policing. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk. And, and I think that okay, policing is actually a great issue to say. Will Will you stay in Chicago and be a Chicagoan, or will you flee because you think the city is a hellhole? Yes. Right. And again, this is this is the fight that you know the dangerous lefties have with the uh, the Trib editorial board. That's the that's the the undercard of lefties versus grifters. Um, <laughs> but you know this idea that the city is becoming untenably dangerous. Um, is a really interesting one, even set against national trends of an increase in mass shootings or sort of like one off. Um, I don't say like random events, but like events that that end in gunfire or violence or death. Those things are all increasing in frequency nationwide. Like yeah. the world and life are becoming more dangerous. Things are becoming more precarious. But because we have this frame of urban crime and dangerous central cities. We love to talk about this in our big cities and we love to talk about it around transition time. And you know, when we love to talk about it the most, Memorial Day. We love to talk about whether the world is going to hell in a handbasket based on a single number, which is how many people get shot over Memorial Day weekend. Um, but I, I, wanna, I wanna come back to the idea of that you were talking about, about like kind of horrific crimes or, or violent incidents that make us look more deeply at like systemic things. Because a story captures so many elements of so many different things. Like that's how we, that's how we receive all these things together. As we see a story, there's a flashpoint. And so, what are what are the two stories that you've been you've been grooving on with this? Well, the one is in New York. That's where we went on that tangent. Uh, that's because I said your hometown. You go, I'm from the suburbs, and then we went on <laughs> ten minutes later. Oh, no, we're back. Uh, yeah. uh, and. Um, it's just as it's such an upsetting story on so many fronts. Uh, uh, the um, a young man. Well, he's not that young. I mean, he's 30 years old. To me, that's young. Uh, 30 year old man, uh, clearly unstable and uh, was um, on the subway and he was yelling out. Uh, and uh, he wasn't as far as every report I've read. He wasn't physically attacking anybody, but he was upsetting people because he was deranged and he was acting in a deranged way. And I, I know I've seen people like this uh, on subways here in Chicago, and it's very uncomfortable. And generally what you do is, uh, Denali, is get up at the next stop and go to another car, hope that he goes to another car or she, as the case may be, or just put your head down and plow on and, you know, it's just... Get wait till you get to your next stop. Uh, and what happened in New York uh, is that another passenger uh, attacked the guy. As far as I could tell, that's my rendering of it. Maybe you have a different one. Uh, got him in a chokehold and ended up killing him. Yeah. And now, so New Yorkers, it's the way it's being presented are divided. There are those who say this is outrageous. You shouldn't kill somebody in a subway because they're acting deranged. And there are those who are saying, I'm glad that somebody did something because this people like this are upsetting. And uh, I could see this becoming, you know, the great next uh, culture battle in the city and MAGA endorsing uh, the guy who did the killing, who apparently is a, uh, a veteran of the Marines uh, and lefties embracing the man who was killed or not embracing him, but uh, saying this is wrong. So that's you know, talking me, about safety, right? Yeah. So in a situation, Many people were and felt unsafe. 
one person ended up dead, which is about as unsafe as you can get. And I think the issue is that if we want to talk about public safety, so safety for the public, we would like people to not end up dead for just kind of going about their business, right? So to me, what happened there is a tremendously unsafe situation. And it's not a tragic accident and it's not a whatever, like that to me is a public safety threat. And for everybody who feels like the idea of, like I am not saying in any way that, you know, right, like having your peace disturbed, right? Which is also not the full extent of it. Having Feeling that your physical safety is threatened is a really big deal in an enclosed space. Um, and so I know like we had talked about this before, right? So this came up when people were asking me during the campaign, like, oh, do you want to see more cops on the CTA? Do you want to see this? Do you want to see that? And I was very open about this that, um, you know, many years ago, I was riding the train with um, my boyfriend at the time and maybe some other friends. Uh, my boyfriend just got in a bicycle accident. He was in a sling and sort of a guy similar to that. Well, like not similar, like the guy came and was just shouting at everybody on the train and like just kind of escalating and escalating and spinning out. Um, clearly had some mental health issues going on. And uh, he was walking by and just kind of getting right in the face of every person and just shouting at them. Okay. And so that is a safety threat for the people who say like people should be able to do whatever they want. Like I would like to go places without people shouting in my face or escalating a situation. Um, and so <laughs> my, my boss at the time who will come back because she is connected to Rudy Giuliani um, had said to me that, so he, he was coming and he was like yelling at everybody. And, and my boyfriend said this thing and my boss describes it as quote, the thing white people say before they die, which is like a terrible thing for her to say. Uh, but he said, we, we don't want any trouble. And the guy just reached out and backhanded him. He was in a sling at the time. And so immediately this escalated from like a verbal conflict and a threatening situation to a violent situation. And, um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about kind of my um, my own history of like trauma, mental health issues or whatever, but like I was the only person on the train who did anything. And I got up, picked up my, you know, boyfriend at the time's bicycle chain and I held it up at the guy and I started screaming at him and he started screaming at me and I started screaming at him and it was like probably something I saw in a nature show about how to fight a bear and I am not advising that anybody ever do this. This was a total panic response uh, and it is something that really made me reconsider choices I was making in my life. But the guy got off the train. And I remember looking around at a bunch of other people on the train and saying like, why didn't anybody else do anything? And the answer is we don't know what to do. The right solution is to be able to deescalate. But also every private citizen shouldn't necessarily need to know how to deescalate a really serious situation like that. So when I did go and talk to people about this in terms of like the police, like policing and the CTA and whatever, um, I said, you know, it would just be really nice. Police, we talked about this last time, right? Like police do not fundamentally de-escalate situations. Situations like that require de-escalation. So who or what do, do we need in terms of professionals to be connected with the CTA or places where these things are happening? And then what do we need to know as citizens to understand what it looks like to do, I guess, like, you know, whatever the like you're an individual human version of defensive driving is when you're riding on the train do you do you teach yeah i have a, I have a teenage kid who rides the cta alone like you know you teach people to move you teach them to kind of make space and for some people that's not enough because making space is not control like the you know the guy who who killed this guy there are people who say like we need to control the situation by controlling the person who we feel is introducing the threat um, oh, and I was supposed to tell the coda to this story because that's what what made you laugh on the call, which is uh, the that relationship ended up ending very quickly after that incident because it is really like not a thing uh, that a lot of people can handle when you know 
your girlfriend defends you from a violent attack, which later ended up clearing the way for me to meet my now husband several months later. So I guess the situation is if you learn how to successfully um, diffuse and de-escalate subway crime, um, maybe you'll get married someday. Wait. All right. So uh, <laughs> taking the personal out of this, uh, when you review what you did, yeah. Uh, in retrospect, what do you wish you had done? I wish that I had de-escalated the situation. I wish I knew how to do that. And I think one of the things, again, that happened, right, that that turned the situation is almost everybody else, again, who were New Yorkers uh, or people who knew how to deal with this, know that in some situations you don't engage. Sometimes engaging is escalation, right? And so I also think the other thing that was missing in that situation is sort of a collective concern for each other. Each person is thinking about if somebody gets hit on this car, I am trying to make sure it's not me. I'm fine with it being that guy. But so so that's like my personal experience with it. And I, I share that experience to say that like it is scary for people who are just like, this is life. We live with it. We're Chicagoans. I will say that it is very, very scary to be in an enclosed space in an uncontrollable situation um, that is escalating towards violence. It is really, really scary and it stays with you for a long time. But I also feel like people embracing the idea that we can just go around murdering anybody who scares us are not safe people. And they're not people who, who, who should be teaching us how to stay safe. And so I'm going to say another New York name to you from maybe 40 years before, which is Bernie Getz. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? A lot of people are probably not talking about that. But Bernie Getz was a guy who shot a bunch of kids on the subway. Basically. In the 80s, um, was it an attempted robbery that he said? Yes. But he became a a vigilante. He became a hero to some people for the idea that you have the right to protect yourself. And I I think I'm fine with the idea that folks have the right to protect themselves, but I don't think another person should end up dead. Your safety versus some, your comfort versus someone's life is a very stark um, public safety conversation that comes into stark relief on something like a subway crime, but we see it refracted in little bits and pieces with lots of surveillance and control and whatever. Yep. Do we allow young people to come downtown? I don't know. That offends my comfort. But we shouldn't. Yeah, no, there's so much at play here. And uh, Bernard gets 1984 subway. Uh, and, oh, God, I'm just reliving that one. Uh, and, and, and the uh, dynamics, Donald Trump was in the middle of that one too, as I recalled, uh, yep. and then he much more in the middle of the central five, uh, which is one of the, another one of these, uh, horrific stories out of New York city that turns into these parables, uh, and, um, leads to all kinds of, uh, horrific public policy decisions. But again, these narratives take place. And one of the narratives about New York city, and, and let's just talk about this, um, doesn't have a direct parallel to Chicago, uh, but uh, New York City, the, the, this narrative that was generally written is that liberal do-gooders uh, stripped New York City of the power to regulate itself, to crack down on obnoxious people, troublemakers, squeegee. Squeegee men, that's what I said. Squeegee it was a men. big thing. People might yeah. not know what people might not know what that what that is, Ben. Well, okay, so uh I'll let you squeegee men are the guys who with New York, if you're driving through New York and you pull up to a red light, all of a sudden out of nowhere they come up and they start squeegeeing your window. And it's in in some cases they would create more dirt than they were 
cleaning up, uh, but you were supposed to then pay them for their services. So it was it was viewed as a form of harassment, a shakedown. And it was the idea that they were touching your property, right? So again, when you think about why is a squeegee man a threat, like you're in an enclosed vehicle. And yeah, this is a person you didn't choose to interact with. They're escalating a situation by trying to get money out of you. But there is this idea of protecting property, right? The threat is, is you know, someone is coming up to your car and touching your car. And I think that goes back to this idea of like, some of these things are just intolerable safety threats for people. And like, I don't want those things to happen to me. But at the same time, like, murder right like the the kind of policing that we sometimes um want to enact in response to things like that it does feel a little bit extreme yes i would say murder so anyway going back to the narrative uh and so it, it there was a, just like it, a downfall that took place in the 80s culminating in david dinkins election i'm just telling you the central narrative that so many new yorkers buy into like chicagoans have their own narratives that, that we talked about those earlier in the show uh and then rudy giuliani was elected yes. mayor in 1991 uh and he cleaned up a dirty city and uh new yorkers will be forever grateful to him for having rid gotham of squeegee men uh homeless people dirt trash Porn. Crime, porn. My dad and I were in Times Square the day the last peep show closed. Wow. I mean, we were just passing through, but it's, okay. you know, it is, you know, of course, now I have to give you an alibi and it's weird. This is like the second time that I've mentioned my dad on the show today. Hi, dad. Um, but no, I would say the contrast with Chicago is like, so broke, we talk about broken windows policing under Bill Bratton and Rudy Giuliani, this idea that like any little infraction all these small things add up to big things. And there's this idea of like, if you let people do blah, 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 if the city looks this way, if these things are tolerated and accepted, they will grow and this will become a dangerous city, right? That was the New York City hard crackdown early model. In Chicago, I think what happened because we're a, we're a less dense city is this idea of containment and control. We have to keep some people somewhere and not keep them from coming into downtown. Like you can't keep people out of Manhattan. Like Chicago style policing just wouldn't wouldn't work there. And so they did adopt this this crackdown model. And I mean, Giuliani came in. So you can talk about the history of Rudy Giuliani. Like uh, I think he he had run before and and lost, I believe. But he came up as a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, which is like super flashy, right? Like Rudy Giuliani, Preet Bharara. And he came up taking on both uh, white collar crime and the mafia. Like a very kind of like celebrity, tough on crime, whatever. I would also like to point out, because it's something we talk about a lot in my house. For a very long time, Rudy Giuliani was married to his second cousin. Did you know that? Uh, vaguely aware of that. Yeah. Just like a fun fact, right? Because people say this thing like, oh, like later in life, we found out that Rudy Giuliani was crazy during his Trump phase. And I was like, I know all of these things about Rudy Giuliani, right? So this is what I, okay, this is what I told you last time, which is why you brought me back, which is for a very long time, Paris Hilton, Donald Trump, and Rudy Giuliani were New York problems. The New York Post, and we all had these three problematic people. And each of them has this profound national cultural arc that like, I don't know. They're like three of the four horse people of the apocalypse in terms of like where our culture is going. Well, you it's your job to figure out who the fourth New Yorker who became nationally uh, famous is. Or maybe they're not here yet. And when they arrive, they will bring the end of days. Um, but each of those three people, you can trace a really interesting path from like their time in New York and how it incubated a lot of the things they did on a national stage 
Um, like Donald Trump, for instance, you mentioned the Central Park Five. Donald Trump took out a newspaper ad calling for the execution of children who were wrongfully arrested for a crime. And people were like, cool with this. That's what he was doing before. Yeah, that was all part, that was, I believe, in 89 uh, or somewhere around. And, and that, again, is part of the narrative that we've lost control of our city. We've got to take control. Just kill Young them. people are wilding. That was yeah. the term that they used. Uh, it was for yeah. large groups of young people coming to parks, which, of course, we don't allow anymore in the city of Chicago because we've learned our lesson. But this fear, this idea about containment and control and crime and violence and something really terrible is going to happen to you. And it's okay for other people to have their freedom of movement um, constrained. It's okay to not let some citizens of our city come to parts of our city. It's okay if people become collateral damage and they die because they make us uncomfortable. That acceptance, and again, right, we talk about like when the police kill somebody, that's, that's, that's a state killing, right? The, that's the government. That's your tax dollars. Those are, the, those are your people. So we all own some of that. And so when you are somebody or a lot of people in Chicago are asking for more of that kind of risk, more of that kind of response to safety, I just think that's too much of a, that's more than most of us should be willing to take on morally. So do you think broken windows works? In terms it doesn't. No, no. There's been a lot of studies that show that it actually doesn't work. Right. I mean, and if you think about it, like if you step like it, it's it's such a it's such a it's such a vibe, maybe if that's what Gen Z would call it. Um, if you think about it again, from a public administration perspective, we only have so much money. And we only have so many costs. Where do we want to deploy them? Where do we want to use our capacity? What are the things that are making our people unsafe? And if we're chasing littering and graffiti and, and homelessness and conditions related to poverty, um, that's what we're spending our police power on. That's what we're spending our tax dollars on. And we're asking a police officer to be our first line of response to homelessness rather than da, 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 human service capacity infrastructure, right? A continuum model of, you know, emergency, short-term, long-term, permanent supportive housing, right? All of these other things that we know work. But we're not willing to build up that capacity and keep that on hand all the time to deploy, whether it's for a migrant, whether it's for a person in our own city, whether it's for a person with a mental illness, whether it's for somebody who's aging out of the foster care system. Like, we don't think that that is worth keeping at the same high levels that we must maintain our police at. Uh, yeah. And uh, what we what do we want our police to do uh, is a question that never gets answered, much less asked. Uh, apparently, we want them you, to do we, we asked it last thing. time. Yeah. We're asking each other this question. We, you and I ask it. Big <laughs> <laughs> Dumpke, my old friend and I, we talk about it all the time. Uh, but I, I don't see that conversation going on with policymakers. And uh, it's a third rail because it's safety, right? Um, you know, again, I think I might have told you that when I was talking to folks at early voting, they would talk, we would talk about treatment on trauma. And they said, well, can't we do a co-responder model? Can't we have a behavioral health person and a police officer? And the most effective thing I would do is just turn around and show them, you know, city budget of Chicago is a bunch of different budgets. And the police are paid for with your property taxes. So you can't have your property taxes go down. We talked about the last time and still kind of keep increasing police. So when we can start substituting other kinds of human service professionals and supplementing that into this larger apparatus of public safety, we're doing so much more to keep people safe. And we can address chronic conditions, not just acute ones. We can be ready for crises of all kind. 
right? Like we can be, we can keep people safer in lots and lots and lots of different ways. So uh, before we completely lose Rudy, yes. Rudy Giuliani, although I think he will be a constant in our conversation, yes, yeah. uh, because he truly has lost his mind. Uh, but you're yeah. suggesting that the mind was already lost years ago and nobody recognized it. Is that essentially uh, the Denali think, theory? Well, I think that he was always a grandiose person, right? He always loved being in the paper. He always loved the idea of, you know, he would, he would go to a lot of the same, like, you know, restaurants and bars and stuff like that. He loved being a mafia prosecutor. He loved taking people down. Actually, fun fact, right? Because everything is connected. In, oh, I want to say like the early 80s, when when Rudy Giuliani was was still before he was at SDNY, he actually testified to say that there was no such thing as um, like a need for migration in the case of a bunch of Haitian asylum seekers that were coming. Uh, so coming from like baby Dr. Duvalier, he was like, oh yeah, like that's not a real thing. These people don't need asylum. Which is funny because then you see him come up in the Trump administration. You see people thinking about borders and migration and building walls and like, well, I don't think your need to come to another place to keep your family safe meets my definition of safety. My definition of safety is keeping you as far away from me as possible. Um, and then, of course, like terrorism, right? You know, uh, his police commissioners. And, and there was this great thing of him being a prosecutor. He loved having a strong relationship between a mayor and a police commissioner. He loved it. Bill Bratton and Bernie Carrick, um, the war on terror, right? And that's what elevated Rudy Giuliani to becoming America's mayor. And all of this stuff became normalized, right? And so when you think about it, there there is kind of an interesting jump from broken windows to the war on terror. Because we really, really want to think about all of these proactive and visible shows of force we can do to keep people safe. That might be too much galaxy brain. No, and and I got to tell you, that was a great riff. When you said that, I when Ben says it's a great riff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, rec I, I recognize good riffs when I hear them, okay? Uh, because when you did that, I was like, thought of Rom and Big Mac. And then, and they were emulating Rudy and Carrick and all Rudy. That notion that a mayor has to be tied at the hip with the police chief, which is something that Lori Lightfoot picked on. I see Brandon Johnson heading down that path as well. The notion that, you know, this is the most important position I have in the city uh, and um, because public safety is the most important issue we have. Well, the Johnson uh, administration has the opportunity again to say that it's not just going to be closely tied to policing, it's gonna be tied to public safety and to start expanding the definition of what we consider public safety. And I think that was a big part of the campaign. I'm hoping that that will be a big part of the administration and that that will really touch human services. Well, I can tell you right now, every step of the way, if they try to do that, they will get pushback resistance along the lines of what I just opened the show with, where what Carlos Ramirez Rosa does in Logan Square is turned into this socialistic threat, even though it's essentially the same policy that mayors have been following in downtown Chicago since the daily years. Just want to point that out. Every step of the way, there's going to be, because obviously there's a lot of people who profit from well, I think This is a great example of what, Car what Carlos is trying to do is thinking about like, is, is this zoning thing about producing housing versus producing profit is thinking about people. 
right? Not about thinking about capital. And with everything that we have about policing versus a larger apparatus of public safety, all of these other public safety things we're talking about, about protecting people, police protect property and people. And so for the propertied people, shifting any of that towards a more expansive definition of where and when the police have to respond or what the mayor is responsible for is the idea that like the mayor has to be more beholden to my property downtown than he does to the lives of people in other communities in the city. And that requires a very complicated understanding of who gets to be a person, who gets to be a child, who gets to be a citizen, who gets to be, you know, any of these important designations that we use when we think about who gets to be a Chicagoan. Right, who gets to be a Chicagoan. We'll, uh, we come back to that. Uh, and the other uh, story that you said, I said there were two stories, is this ongoing story uh, that's in Chicago, very upsetting. Uh, Ariana Preston, a 24-year-old police officer, uh, was killed this weekend. I think it was this weekend, may have been Friday. I can't remember when exactly. Uh, and uh, the headline of today's Sunday, uh, sometimes five in custody after fatal shooting of Chicago uh, police officer and um, apparently was a, a holdup. Uh, and uh, she she was killed. And uh, I'm not quite sure if she fired first back during the holdup. Uh, they're still sort of sorting it out. Uh, that's a very upsetting story because, well, it's just very upsetting when someone is killed uh, in the streets of Chicago, a police officer is killed. So it's just that nobody is safe. Uh, and uh, just sort of our general helplessness uh, to, I don't know, to do anything. They killed while returning home, right? I think it's the, it's the off-duty aspect. This, this kind of brings a lot of different things into focus, of which is the idea that, like, that I think when we read this story, there's this idea that no one is safe. That is the theme of the story. No one is safe. Uh, and um, and now there's a secondary story coming out. Why did it take more than 30 minutes for police to find a fatally wounded officer? Uh, that's a sub-story uh, that's emerging. We'll see how long these articles last in the public's mind. Um, well, I mean, that just goes back to, like, I mean, this is the thing I talked about with people a lot on the campaign with something like ShotSpotter. It's a total grift. Um but we can talk about that another time. Yeah, another time. All right. Law uh, enforcement grifts. Uh, are any, let's like end this something with hopefulness or happiness or peace and love and beauty in the world. Something that's been so sober and somber. Well, I guess, uh, yeah. I mean, look, so we, we have kind of come up with some helpful maxims about how to make people safer and, and better. And it's the idea of like when we're doing something, Let's try to do it for people. Let's try to make sure that the public sector has the capacity to take care of people, right? We can make things really complicated or we can make things really simple. And if we have this idea that like, uh, are we spending money to make things better for people? And are we spending money in building capacity? So when we decide how many jobs we're gonna hire, what the government's job is, how they're gonna coordinate the many service providers and citizens and communities and, and you know, good hearted people in the city, are we really making sure that we're bringing everything to bear um, to help the people of the city? Are people better off? And then once the crisis is passed, how do we hold on to the pieces of that that we want to hold on to to continue to make this a better city so that we're not just getting crisis fatigue and we're not doing these intensive mobilizations and demobilizations? We leave no federal and state dollars on the table unspent. Right. We make sure that our government has the capacity to do as much as we can for as many as we can 
with the people who need it the most, probably first in line. Those are all pretty general rules that I think will make make the city safer and better. And I don't think, again, right, going back to what you're saying about like centrist and mainstream Chicago, like I don't think it'll make people worse off. It'll make no. them angry. Yeah, kind of scream and scream and holler, but I don't think it will make them worse. Well, there's we'll leave this for another time. There's an agenda that mainstream Chicago has, uh, and uh, to get that agenda, part of what they have to do is scare people. Yeah, and, and I think that could be our last checklist item, right? Like, if the only way you can sell this to people is by making them afraid, it's probably not a very good product. That is a great line. I'm writing it down. Uh, <laughs> and as I always say to my guests, 50-50, whether I give you credit for it. That's okay, uh, as long as it makes its way into the world. You know what? Every guest is so generous. I use that line all the time. Uh, and every guest says the same thing. That's okay. <laughs> you don't have to give me credit. And I've, I've like been taught to give people credit. You know, that's what kind of like taught. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just journalism, but just life. I think you should give people credit. And when they do something good or say, in this case, say something. And I, I, I just talked so much. I didn't write it down. If the only way to sell an idea to people uh, is to scare them, then maybe it's not a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know that's not exactly what you said, but it's. But you said it better. So now we made it together. <laughs> We're like Lennon and McCartney. We brought it together <laughs> and now it sings. Uh, all right, Denali, thank you so much. You're awesome. And so generous with your time. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Probably talk to you next month, all right? All right, take care. Have a good one. All right, Denali. Bye. I also want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job, as he always does. And Denali will agree when I say this. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more great content, all at chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show and on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. <laughs>